Good morning. How's everybody doing? How's everybody doing this morning? Good? Yeah? So that video was a little bit of a recap of what's been happening in our uh, campus in Albuquerque, New Mexico. This is their, uh, this is their first ever three-day conference happening right now. And uh, Pastor Adam is over there bringing the word this morning. But uh, we had a great time there. It was myself, uh, Luke Bogart, and uh, Pastor Adam all went down there on Friday morning. Uh, there's amazing things that God is doing in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Uh, I'm telling you, there is nothing to do in Albuquerque, New Mexico. That Elevate Ministries Albuquerque is the, the most fun thing to do in the entire city, I'm telling you. Uh, and I'm not just saying that as like, uh, raised in church, you should go to church. No, it's like there is nothing to do in that city. And so we're believing that God's going to bring major revival there. And uh, Pastor Valentino and Jennifer are doing a fantastic job. They're just the best people. If you don't know them, uh, I would encourage you that in March, when our conference comes around, March 15th, uh, make sure that you introduce yourself to them, get to know them. They're amazing people. Uh, real quick, a couple of announcements. First off, uh, Baptism Sunday is coming up January 29th. Yeah, how many of you guys love Baptism Sunday? It's always an amazing thing. And so uh, if you haven't been baptized, I would encourage you to sign up to be baptized. You can do that in the foyer, uh, and uh, you will not regret it. And then other than that, I want to give every single person in this room an opportunity to give. Uh, we're a church that we, we, we love giving. We're generous people, and, and we believe that because we're generous to God, God's generous to us. We believe that, uh, and this is how the church functions. This is how the church continues to move forward. In order for the church to move on to what God has called us to, we need to have some support. How many of you guys can say amen? And, 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 and every single person on staff in this church, we give because we support the mission that this church is a part of. And so I would encourage you this morning, if, even if you've never done it before, take that step today. It will bless your life. It will break a curse of, uh, of selfishness over your life when you give. The moment you give, it unlocks generosity in your heart, and it will change your life forever. So I encourage you to do that this morning. We have many ways to do that. You can give by text. You can download the Elevate Ministries app. You can scan the QR code. You can do whatever is easiest for you. Amen? Everybody good? Yeah? I'm all the way at the end of my notes. Uh, so this morning, I have a message I want to share with you. Uh, if you are uh, Elevate Nights uh, person and you, uh, you go to our Friday night services, parts of this may sound familiar to you, but I encourage you to lean in today because I believe that God can speak to us this morning. Uh, and so uh, I'm going uh, to share with you a message uh, about faith. We're going to talk about faith this morning. How many of you guys know in order to see the end goal, in order to see uh, where God is taking our church, in order to get there, it requires some faith from us. How many of you guys know what I'm talking about? And so I want to share with you about faith. And the title of this message today is this, Faith That Works. Someone say, Faith That Works. Because a lot of people have faith, but not a lot of people have faith that actually works. And what is faith that works? Faith that works, all it is, is faith with works. The truth is, is that growth in your life is the result of combining your faith and your works. Combining your faith in your actions, Mark chapter 9, verse 23, it tells us this, that everything is possible for he who believes. So if you have a little bit of faith, anything is possible for you to do. Amen. That's what that scripture says. But the truth is, is that you can't just believe. And this is shown to us all throughout scripture. In James chapter 2, verse 16, it says that faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, it's what? It's dead. And so in order to have faith that's alive, we need to have faith with works. James chapter 2, verse 21.
a great picture for us to understand this. Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what? By what he did. How did Abraham's faith become complete? The, fa the father of our faith. How did he have complete faith? Because it wasn't just his faith, but it was made complete by what he actually did. And we go on, it says, and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. So if we want to be a righteous people, which how many of you know that's what God has called us to be? In order for us to be that, it's not just faith that's required, but it's works too. We need to have faith with works. There's no growth in your life with just faith and no works. There's no growth in your life in just works and no faith. And a lot of us can get confused by that. Just because you open the Bible reading app every, the Bible reading app every day, and you join in and, and read your three little chapters and do a little devotional, it doesn't mean you're growing. That's a work. But we need to have some faith to back up our work. Just because you pray every day, if you don't have faith that's established in what you do, then you don't have active faith in your life. Amen. Growth is the result of combining your faith. And your works. So there's a story that I'd like to open up uh, this message with you found in Matthew chapter 17. And this is a story that a lot of us would be uh, familiar with. And this story takes place right after Jesus was taken, uh, he takes up Peter, James, and John to a place called the Mountain of Transfiguration. How many of you guys have heard this story before? So he takes them up to this mountain, and it's an incredible incredible experience. He takes these three disciples up with him and waiting at the top of this mountain are Moses and Elijah, okay? Moses and Elijah are basically the heroes of the faith. They're the heroes of, of, of this religion that these disciples are, they're the heroes of, of the life that these disciples are trying to live. They're the prime example of what to strive for. And so you got to think these disciples are having this face-to-face -face interaction with Moses and Elijah, it, like flesh to flesh, they're, they're talking. And, and in the middle of that, Jesus gets transfigured. He gets lifted up to the sky. The heavens get split open. And, the, and, and it's proven to them that Jesus is the Son of God. That would be an amazing experience. How many guys would say, how many guys would like to meet Moses face to face or Abraham? That would be amazing, right? Like this is the experience that they have. And when I read this, I think about, man, you think coming down from that, it would be a pretty faith-filled week, right? Like if you came face-to-face -face with Elijah, the guy who never died, he was just lifted to heaven. If you came face-to-face -face with that guy, you would think that the rest of the week, anything is possible, right? Like, oh, I can do anything. Like God is, for sure God is on my side. I can, you know, that's how we would think. It's kind of like, our conferences here at Elevate, when we have conferences that uh, take place over a weekend, what's the goal of those conferences? It's to, to build up our faith, that we would leave that conference with a fueled faith that says God can do anything. That's why we lay out vision in this church, and we, we have this conference to give you the faith to believe that what we're believing and dreaming and have vision for, it can actually happen. That's why we do those things. And so that's basically the, the encounter that these disciples have. And, and you would think coming down from that, they'd have this massive faith. But right after the experience, you go down to verse number 14. And a man comes to the disciples with his son. And he says, guys, look, my son's, my son's demon-possessed. 
My son's got, he's got a demon in him. Can you help him? Can you help us? And the Bible tells us that the disciples, they try, but they aren't able to do it. They try to deliver this kid, but, but it doesn't work. And in Matthew chapter 17, verse 17, it says, Jesus said to them, oh, you faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. And so after this happens, the, the disciples come to Jesus, and they're like, Jesus, how come it didn't work for us? How, why weren't we able to drive out the demon? What, what did we do wrong? I don't understand. And I think this is something that should catch all of our attention. Because the disciples just had this faith-filled week. They just had this amazing, the most incredible Sunday morning service ever with the guest speakers of Moses and Elijah the prophet. It was like the most amazing thing ever. But all of a sudden, it, it doesn't really work out the way they thought it would. And on top of that, they had the authority that they needed to drive that demon out. We know this because in Luke chapter 10, verse 19, it tells us that I have given you the authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to what? To overcome all the power of the enemy. So the disciples carried this authority. They just had this amazing encounter and they carried this authority. Not only did they have the authority, but they also had the prime example of what to do. They had been walking with Jesus. They had seen Jesus deliver these kids. They've seen Jesus deliver demons before. They've seen Jesus do the miraculous. They've seen all these things. They witnessed them hand on hand. They had way more experience and way more capability than most of us do in this room today. They were way more prepared to handle this kind of situation. So why didn't it work? Why, why weren't they able to do why weren't they able to drive this demon out of this kid? And it tells us in verse number 20 that Jesus tells them, it's because of your unbelief. For assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. And so we see in this story that Jesus is telling the disciples, the reason why you weren't able to do it is because you had no faith. It's because you lacked faith. And you think coming down from this mountaintop experience of meeting these, these amazing guys, having this faith-filled week, and what does Jesus tell them? You have no faith. The reason why you weren't able to do it is because you have no faith. And, and this is interesting to me because we see over and over again through the New Testament that the miracles of Jesus were unleashed by the combination of faith and action. That's, that's, what, that's what unleashes the power of God. It's, it's faith and action. And, and we see, I can see this in my own life, that, that when, when, when Christ died for us on the cross, what he did is he, he put the opportunity in our hands to grow, right? He gave us the ability to take control of our destiny, that all of a sudden he broke the curse that was over our lives. He broke the limitations that were over us. And so what happens is now he's put in our hands everything we need to grow. We, but it requires some work from us. How many of you guys know that to be true? It's not just some free thing that happens. A lot of times we, we just think God's going to do all the heavy lifting for us, but that's not true. God is, when Christ died on the cross, it wasn't a commitment that God was going to do everything for you. It was God giving you the ability to actually take the opportunity to get better. That's what happens. And, and so because of that, it gives you and I an opportunity to, to move forward in our lives. It gives us an opportunity to press towards the things of God. And, and it's up to you and I what we do with that opportunity. 
It's up to you and I on how we react to that. And we can see this in the miracles of Jesus. John chapter 8 is a story about the woman caught in the act of adultery. Most of us would be familiar with this story. This woman gets caught doing the nasty. Amen. And, uh, and so they, they drag her out and they throw her into the street. And, and the Pharisees gather around and they all start picking up stones and they're, and they're about to kill her. Right? That's basically what happens. And Jesus comes along and he says, you who haven't sinned, throw the first stone. And we all know what happens that all the Pharisees begin to drop their stones and they, and they leave her. And so in this moment, Jesus saves this girl's life. That's basically what happens, right? He saves this girl's life. And, and what I find interesting is that, that the redemption that comes from Christ, the salvation that comes from Christ, isn't the removal of your mistakes. That's not what takes place in this story. She's still lying naked in the street. She's still got that shame of what she just did over her while she's sitting in the street. God didn't remove that from her. But he saves her life, and then he tells her, go now and leave this life of sin. That's what happens when Christ touches us. We see it again in John chapter 5. Jesus heals a man at the sheep gate pool. He touches the man's hand, and he says, get up and walk. And the man gets up and walks. And what is Jesus saying? Jesus just redeemed this man. He healed this man. And then the next thing that Jesus says is now go and sin no more. Every time we see Jesus heal people, when we see Jesus touch someone's life, it beckons a response from them. It beckons them to move in a certain direction. And it's the same with you and me. That when Christ touches your life, that's not the end of the story. That's not you giving up control and it's like, okay, God, you can, you, you can take control. You're going to do everything else for me. No, God touches you and it gives you the opportunity to make this, the, the conscious decision, okay, now I'm living different. Now I'm following in the steps that Christ has put ahead of me. I'm not searching after everything else, but I'm following through with what God has called me to do. And we see this over and over again in the life of Jesus. And the truth is, is that it's not because he has to, not because of the fact that it, it, it was required of him, but because of the fact that he loves you and I. Because he loves us so much, he gave us the opportunity. He gave us everything we need to be able to have relationship with him. He gave us everything we need. But in order for that to happen, in order for us to grow, in order for us to get to the end goal, it requires some work on our part. The truth is, is God doesn't want to be a problem solver for us. God doesn't want to be a problem solver for the church. God doesn't want to do that. God doesn't want to just do everything for you. God wants to be a partner with you. God wants to partner with the church of Elevate Ministries to make a difference in this city. God wants to partner with, God partners with our action and with our faith to use us to do something amazing for Christ. And so we see this partnership all throughout scripture. All the way, from the beginning all the way to we see this partnership between God and man. And we see miracles of Jesus over and over again. They're fueled by the people that are surrounding him. It's interesting that Jesus always involves other people in stuff that other people can't do. Right? And in Jesus' first miracle, what did he do? He turned water into wine, right? But he uses humans to do the, like, the simplest, dumbest things to make that miracle possible. Right? Jesus could have done everything himself. He could have done that. And I think somehow that, sometimes that's how we find our, ourselves. That in my mind, I'm the kind of guy that's, I'm just going to try to do everything myself. 
I don't, I don't need your help with this. I got this. I'm okay. I, I, I'm good. I, I can do this. Okay, I, I got this. I think a lot of us think that way, but Jesus replicates that that's not how we're supposed to live. And so the first miracle, Jesus sends some guys, bring me the water. You, you have to bring I can turn it into wine. You got to bring it to me. It's interesting that he does that. We see it again when Jesus feeds the multitude. Jesus could have made bread fall from the sky. We know that because God does that in the Old Testament. Where manna fell from, Jesus could have done that, but he doesn't. For some reason, Jesus, he takes a little, a little kid's lunch, but not in like a bully kind of way. Like he's like, don't worry, I'll give it back, you know? But he, he takes a little kid's lunch, and he uses that to multiply, to feed everyone else. But that kid's food is what fueled that miracle. God uses people to fuel what he's doing. We see it again when uh, the disciples are out fishing and, and they can't catch anything. And Jesus says, throw your nets out to the other side. And they're like, oh, we've done that before. Uh, there's nothing out here. Jaws was here a week ago. You know, like all the fish are gone. And, and, and then he's just, just do it. So they throw their nets out and the nets become so full that they begin to break. And, and the truth is, is that God could have done all of those miracles by himself. He could have done all those things without the involvement of us. But for some reason, he prefers to do things with us, not for us. God wants to be in relationship and partnership with you and I. And so what happens is, is we experience this touch from God. How many of you guys have been touched by God before, yeah? So we experience this touch from God. And when God touches us, what it does is it fuels our faith. Right? It's all of a sudden, oh, I, I'm living different. I'm, I'm going to have a good week this week. I'm going to invite someone to church. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live different. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to get better. That's what, it fuels our faith when we get touched by God. And, and it's our faith that pushes us to respond. How do you guys know that if you don't believe that if you gave, God would give back to you, you probably wouldn't give? Right? If you didn't actually think putting in the time and effort into your marriage would make things better, you probably wouldn't put in the time and effort to make things better. It's our faith that fuels our actions. It's the key to transforming our lives. It's the key to, to changing our situations. It's the key to all growth. It's the combination of not only just your faith, but also your works. And this morning today, my goal is to build up your faith to the point where it would fuel you into acting on it. My goal is that your faith would be so big as you leave this place today that you would, you would have no choice other than to live your life behind your faith. Can we do that this morning? Yeah, is that okay? Is everyone still with me? And so the first thing I want to tell you is this. Your faith doesn't need to be big. It just needs to be present. You don't need to have big faith. You don't need this mammoth amount of faith for God to use your life. The issue with, Christi with Christians today, the issue with the people of God today, isn't that they have small faith. That's not the problem. If every Christian in the world today had a little bit of faith, our world would be a completely different place. The problem in our world is not that Christians have small faith. It's the fact that Christians have dead faith. It's the fact that their faith isn't active in their lives. There's a misconception in our world today that in order to do something big for God, you need to have this big faith. 
And our world, would uh, all you need to have is, is just, a, just a big faith and God can do something big. If we have a big vision, we need a big faith. Like that, that's what we think. But the truth is, is that that's not true. All you need to have is a small little bit of faith. If you have a tiny mustard seed of faith, a small kernel of faith, you can do big things on small faith. Matthew chapter 17 verse 20 confirms this with us when Jesus says, if you have faith as a mustard seed and you say to this mountain to move from here to there, it will move. And then what else does it say? If you have small faith, nothing will be impossible for you. If you have a little bit, just a little bit of faith, the reason why the disciples couldn't drive out the demon is because they had no faith. If you have a little bit of faith, nothing will be impossible for you. And so the question I have for every person this morning is this. It's not if you have big faith or small faith. It's not important. It, I, it doesn't matter what your visions may be. It doesn't matter what your dreams may be. The question I have for you today is, is your faith active in your life? Is your faith alive? All you need is a small amount of active faith. The truth is, is that a lot of us think that we have a dead faith because we have a little bit of doubt. And the truth is, is that just because you doubt doesn't mean you don't have faith. How many of you guys doubt in this room? Every single person, right? We all have doubts. We have doubts about the promises that are in God's word. I don't know if that's really going to happen for me. We, we have doubts like that. I don't know if, I don't know if my family is going to get better than this. I don't know if God can really use my, I'm, I'm not really sure. It, we all have doubts. We all have things like that in our lives. But the truth is that faith isn't the absence of doubt. Faith is what gives you the ability to overcome your doubt and say, no, I, I, might, I might have doubts. I might have feelings, but, but God promised me this. I know that God will work this out for the good. That's what faith is. And so the question is, do you have active faith? You can move big mountains in your life with a small amount of active faith. So do you have active faith? The second thing is this. Faith evens out the playing field. Faith evens out the playing field. One of the most encouraging uh, stories in the Bible for me is found in Judges chapter 6. Uh, and uh, th in this chapter, what we see is the Israelites, they're living under the command of the Midianites. And this is after Egypt. This is after Pharaoh. This is after the Prince of Egypt movie takes place, okay? And so, so that they've already gone through all of this. And, and now the scriptures tell us that, that now they're, they're, they're still under captivity, but this time by a different nation. And you think to yourself, like, at some point, these guys are bound to get it right. You know, like, they're going from captivity to captivity to wandering the desert to captivity. It's just like, at some point, you're going to stop messing up, and you're going to get things right. And in Judges chapter 6, verse 1, it tells us that they're not there yet. It says that the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years, he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. So they don't have it all together yet, right? And... Again, sometimes you just want to throw yourself in this scripture and smack someone across the head. You know, like, just like, what are you doing? You know, like, what's wrong with you? And so we go on in this story. We see that the Midianites are treating the, the children of Israel really bad. It's a really bad situation for them to be in. It's almost, it's almost unbearable for them. And so what was happening is Israel would, would plant their crops. I mean, that's how they ate, right? So they would plant their, their crops. And when the harvest season would come around, the, the Amalekites... And the Midianites would come together, and they would go through, and they would destroy all of the crops in the harvest season. 
destroy everything, right? Removing all of their food, all, it's just gone. On top of that, the Bible tells us that while they were doing that, they would go through, they would kill all of the livestock. They would kill all of their sheep, which would have been their clothing and their, their meat and, and their milk. They would kill all of the cattle, which would have been how they farmed. They, they killed all the, all the donkeys, which would have been their transportation. They killed all the crops, which would have been their, their food. And so they're left with nothing. They're getting by on scraps. And, and the, the Midianites just keep coming through and making things worse. And so it gets so bad to the point, almost unbearable, to where the Israelites, they cry out to God for help. They're like, God, will you help us, please? Will you help us again? And, and so God sends a prophet to them, and this prophet is going to lay it out for them. And the truth is that this prophet does not say what you want to hear. He doesn't say what the Israelites are hoping for. And, and I'm going to paraphrase it a little bit, but... This, this prophet comes out and he says this. He says, look, guys, I took you out of Egypt already. I delivered you from Pharaoh. I delivered you from his armies. I split the sea for you to walk through. When you're wandering through the desert, I made food. McDonald's double-doubles fall from the sky. I, I did that for you, right? Like, I, but I gave you one thing. So I told you, do not worship the God of the Amorites. That's all I asked. I did all this stuff for you. Well, I told you, please, don't worship this one God of the Amorites. But you weren't able to do it. You didn't listen to me. And then the prophet just ends it. That's it. That's, that's the end. Okay? Can you imagine if the Bible ended that way? Can you imagine that? Like, I told you not to sin. You failed. And then the end. Like, that's it. <laughs> That's basically what happens, right? And so the prophet leaves them. That's not what you were hoping to hear. Yeah. And, and as we go through, we see in verse number 11 that God's not done yet. And, and it says that the angel of the Lord came and sat under an oak tree in Ophrah that belonged to Joash, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. And when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. In verse 14, the Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hands. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest, and I am the least in my family. And the Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all of the Midianites, leaving none alive. That's the kind of prophecy that I would have been hoping for, right? And so... In this moment, we see God's calling this man by the name of Gideon to lead the Israel army into battle against the Midianites. And what we need to understand is how big of a calling this really is. How big of a task is at hand for Gideon? Because we read stories about David and Goliath. We read stories about Samson and the jawbone of a donkey just going through and ramboing everyone. Like, we, we read stories like that. And so what makes this one special as you look into it, you find out that the Midianite army had 135,000 men. We guys to say that's a lot of men. It's a lot of people. And, and Gideon, he goes through Israel. He's trying to gather around this army, trying to, trying to find anybody that will fight. Like, just asking random dudes on the street, hey, you, you want to fight? You know, like, just, that's what he's asking, right? Uh, and he, he's able to gather 32,000 men. That's not very good odds. Amen? Right? Like, 135,000, 32,000 it's not looking very good. And, and Judges chapter 7, verse 2, after he gathers around his 32,000, God appears to Gideon and he says this, Gideon, you have too many men. 
if I'm Gideon, I'm not super pumped about that, right? I'm like, God, are you serious? Really? Are you joking me? There's no way, God, I, you must have failed math. That's what I'm thinking, right? Like, yeah, you're, God, you're working the wrong way. What are you, what are you doing? And, and, and God tells me, you know, you have, you have too many men. God, they have 103,000 more men than we do. And their men are actual soldiers. We're just normal dudes, right? Like, they have all the equipment. They have all the weapons. What are we going to do? How are we supposed to fight against that? And you say we have too many men? And God says, yeah, you got too many men. And that's the end of the story, right? And so uh, God tells him, sorry, too many people, Gideon, it's not going to work. And through a selection process, God, he whittles down this Israelite army to 10,000 men. So now you got uh, 135,000 versus 10,000. The odds aren't getting better, right? Like, that's, that's not looking very good either. Now they got 125,000 more men than Gideon's army. And then God says, sorry, Gideon, you got too much. It's not going to work. So then God whittles down the army again, all the way down to 300 people. 300 people, 135,000 against 300 people. Just to put that into perspective for you, that's 450 to 1 odds. In order to win this fight, every single man in Gideon's army would have to kill 450 Midianites. And so you read this, you realize the situation that's at hand. Like this is, this is the greatest parlay in sports betting history right here. Right? Like this is betting against Seabiscuit and winning. You're set for life, right? Like, it's over. And so this is the situation. And the crazy thing about this story is that they win. In the end, they defeat the the Amalekites. They, They win, the Midianites. But I say all of this just to say to you that it doesn't matter what the odds are. It doesn't matter what you're up against. It doesn't matter what you may be facing in your life. It doesn't matter what the state of our country may look like. It doesn't matter what the direction of our country may look like. Faith evens out the playing field. All of a sudden, faith takes that 135,000 men and makes it doable. Faith takes what seems impossible and makes it possible. Faith takes the extraordinary and makes it ordinary. That's what God does with faith. And so we need to have faith because it evens out the playing field. How many of you guys know there's a lot of darkness in our world today? There's a lot of darkness in our country today. Why do we need faith? Because faith evens out the playing field. Because all of a sudden, 450 to 1 odds, they don't seem that bad. Because when God's on your side, anything is possible. Just a little bit of faith takes what seems impossible and makes it ordinary. Faith evens out the playing field. And the final thing I want to share with you is this, faith is progressive. Faith is progressive. And I hope some of you hear this word today, and I hope it leaves a little bit of a sour taste in your mouth. Uh, Because our world has taken this word progressive and kind of given a whole new meaning to it. And when we look at the political definition, the current definition that the world is using for This word progressive, it means something completely different than what it truly means. I was doing some research on this, and uh, and the original definition of the word progressive means looking or gaining momentum towards something ahead. Progressing. 
But if you look at the newer definitions of this word, the fifth definition of this word, the most recently added, it means progressive is somebody who questions the origin of where something came from and lives with the purpose of social change. And you look at how different those words are. They don't, they, that doesn't mean, that, like they don't mean anything similar. That's a completely different word. And so what we see in our society, we see this, we've seen this rise of progressive Christianity. And this is a real issue in, in our country today, a major issue in our world today. And if you don't know what that is, it's progressive Christianity. Is a, it's, it's, it's Christianity that's begun to, they've begun to, to question the origins of where things came from. And they've begun to change the purpose and the motive of what we're doing. We're doing it for this now. We've, we've begun to shift our mentality on things. And so we, and we, we hear this all the time. If we're not careful, it'll start to creep into our church as well. Because how many times have you heard someone say, oh, that's Old Testament stuff? That, that, that's in the old, that doesn't apply to us anymore. Tithing is Old Testament stuff. That was in the Old it, the, the law of Moses no longer applies to me because I'm under Christ. That's what, that's what we begin to do. And so our world has taken that approach. And so uh, uh, LGBTQ, that's, that's Old Testament stuff, dude. That's, that, was way, that was before Jesus. That, that doesn't apply to us anymore. That this kind, these kind of issues that are current in our world today, no, that, that's all Old Testament stuff. And so we've seen this rise in Christians that, that they've, they've confused the origin of where we came from. And, and they're starting to allow certain things in our world that are anti-godly, that are anti-biblical, and we're allowing them, impressing them as if they're okay. They're normal because this is what the new Christianity is. This, is. this is how the new world operates. We have to learn to change, adapt to the times. We have to learn to do these things. It's not true. They've taken this wrong definition of the word progressive, and they've confused themselves. And I want to tell you today that faith is progressive. Faith is progressive, not not the new idea of what progressive means. But faith is a forward-moving thing. Faith is a looking towards kind of thing. It's looking at what hasn't happened yet. That's what faith is. Faith isn't a stagnant thing. Faith isn't looking back on things that happened. Faith is movement. This is a value of our church. And we're a church of movement. We stay out of stuck. Better is better than best. We keep improving. We keep getting better. That's what faith is. Faith is something that continues to move. Faith isn't a regressive thing. It's not a reminiscing thing. Faith is progressive. Faith is moving forward. We can see this in the definition of the word faith. The definition of faith is found in Hebrews 11, chapter 1. It says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. What does hoped for mean? It means it hasn't happened yet. It means that we're looking towards something that hasn't taken place. It's the evidence of what hasn't come. It's the evidence of what's ahead of us. That's what faith is. Faith is progressive. Faith isn't looking back and seeing what God has done. And we can get this confused. A lot of Christians have a dead faith in their lives because their faith doesn't look forwards, it looks backwards. You don't need faith to look back and see what God did for you a year ago. You don't need faith to look back and see where God, oh, God provided for me financially here. 
Oh, God, God fixed my marriage back there. God, God did this for me a couple years ago. That's, you don't need faith for that. That's great. Celebrate that. It's amazing what God has done for us. But at the same time, faith isn't required to see what God did then. Faith is required to see what God is going to do next. That's what faith is. And because faith is progressive, we can look at the situations in our lives that we're in right now. Not, not the past stuff that we went through. We can look at the stuff that we're facing now. We can look at the difficulty that's coming towards us. We can look at our circumstances. We can look at the state of our world right now. We can look at the direction of our, we can look at what our world is calling the laziest generation that the world will ever see. We can look at all of those things and regardless of how good or bad they may look, faith allows us to look forwards to what's ahead of us that hasn't come yet and see that God is producing something in it that's going to be better than we can think of. Faith allows us to see the final, pro, the, the, see that God is producing something, something that can't be seen, something that we can't think about. God is working on something under the surface, and our faith tells us we're going to see it come to pass. That's what faith is. I want to share with you something that God has kind of spoken to me over the past couple of years, and, uh, and I believe that it will be a blessing for, for everyone to hear today. Faith allows us to look at the youth of our world today and say it doesn't matter what people may say or how the world may view this generation. Faith equips us to stand and declare that this next generation will be the most radical, most bold, and most influential generation this world has ever seen. My faith tells me that this next generation will be the brightest light this world has ever seen. That your kids will be the brightest light this world will ever see. My, the problem is, is my mind tells me that the youth of the United States of America have been conditioned and are being conditioned by a demonic agenda in our world. And we can see that happening in society. We see it in our schools. We see it coming from government levels that, that our youth have, are being conditioned by this demonic agenda to get them off track. But my faith tells me that what the enemy meant for evil, God will turn it for good. And I know we've heard that before. And, and sometimes that can be something that goes in one ear and just flies out the other. Because, yeah, I've heard that before. It's not always true. It doesn't always work out that way. But I want to tell you today that this is why I'm so excited. I get so excited about youth ministry. This is why I'm so excited that our church puts emphasis on young people. Because what I've seen is over the past couple of years, I would get frustrated with my generation. I would get frustrated with, with the younger generation beneath me because all I saw was a picture of the enemy distracting people with a bunch of unimportant agendas our society has been publicizing. And I would get bothered by seeing young people in our country doing all kinds of things, protesting, rioting, marching for all these movements that aren't gonna do any good. They're standing for all these movements that, that, that are rooted in evil and they're in support of all these popular things that have come up recently, all kinds of uh, LGBTQ, abortion, all, all this different stuff that has begun to rise. What you see is the younger generation of people standing for it. And in my mind, I see that and I, it breaks my heart. It makes me angry. It makes me frustrated that these people, they're standing for, for evil things that are anti-godly. They're standing for things that are against the things of God. And it frustrates me. 
We see our generation standing for these evil movements that are dressed up in good words. And, and God kind of opened my eyes to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. It says this, Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. For they are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is exact likeness of God. And so for a moment, just for a moment, let's look past what it is that this, what, what this generation is standing for. Let's look past what it is that they're marching for. Let's look past the meaning of these movements. Let's look past the names. Look past what the point of all of it is. Let's look past that for a second. Can we do that real quick? Yeah, I want to share something with you. Because what God has been revealing to me that even though we might not see it, God is raising up a generation that is going to bring the greatest revival this world has ever seen. And I want to explain to you why I believe that. Are you ready? Yeah? Because while the enemy has been trying to blind the minds of the unbelievers, he may have been successful in it right now because all of our youth are lost they're standing for these movements that they don't know are evil they're standing for these things they don't know they're wrong why because scripture tells us their minds have been blinded and so we get frustrated we get angry we, we blame the young people why are they doing this why are they doing it? they don't know any better their their minds have been blinded but what I believe, what I can see, if we can look past those words, if we can look past what the movements stand for, what we see in this generation is that the devil is unknowingly raising up a generation of people bigger than ever before that want to be a part of something that's bigger than themselves. Look past what they're standing for. Look past what these movements stand for. What we see in the young people in America today is that we see the biggest group of young people that want to be a part of something that goes beyond them. They want to be a part of something that inspires change in our society. It might not be the change we want to see. It, not, it might not be the things that we want them to stand for. But right now, we see young people have this desire in their heart to be a part of something bigger than themselves. The issue isn't that they're all standing for this. The issue is that their minds have been blinded by the enemy. I want to challenge you to think, what would happen if the church could open their minds? What would happen if the church would show them the gospel? What would happen if the church could show the young generation all the answers that you're looking for, all the change that you're looking for? It can only be found in Christ. What could happen if we can unblind the minds of the unbelievers? Because what has happened is there's a generation of people that want change. There's a generation of people that want to be a part of something bigger than themselves. If we can show them the only movement that actually has a chance to make a difference, think about the impact they can make in our world today. God can take the broken pieces of our lives and mend them into something better than what was there before. My mind tells me that they're a lost cause. But my faith tells me that God is producing something under the surface that we can't see. Isaiah chapter 43 verse 18 says this, Forget the former things, do not dwell on the past, but see I am doing a new thing. This is a very famous scripture. A lot of us have read this scripture. We've heard this scripture in church. And I think we don't spend enough time talking about 
what this scripture is truly saying. If we look in the background of this story, the children of Israel, they've been in Babylonian captivity. And we see this in Second Chronicles. And they're in exile in Babylon for nine full books in the Bible. That's a, that's a long time. It, it takes you a long time to read nine books, right? Some of you, some of you, probably, some of you maybe haven't read nine books. And you're 30 years behind. But uh, that's a long time. And, and these, these nine books, they represent 30, 70 years. So you can picture these, the children of Israel have been in, in, in exile in Babylon for 70 years. And, and what is happening is they've become so accustomed, so used to living under this captivity that they've just started to live in what God has already done. They start reminiscing, oh, remember when God delivered us from Egypt? Remember when God delivered us from Pharaoh? Remember when God split the Red Sea? Oh, rem remember when God made bread fall from, oh, wasn't that amazing? They're, they're, they're living in all these things that God has already done. And yes, those are amazing things. But the truth is, is God isn't still thinking about what he's already done. God has moved on. God is working on something new. God is doing something new today. And so when this scripture comes into play, this scripture is a scripture of faith. What this scripture is saying, Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah is coming, he's prophesying to the children of Israel. He's saying, yes, God did great things. Don't forget about, they, they were amazing. He split the sea for us to walk through on dry land. Yeah, it was an incredible thing. God's done amazing things for us in the past. But what Isaiah is saying, forget the former things. He's saying, don't live in the past because God wants to do something new today. What he says is, he says, although your deliverance out of Egypt was great, your deliverance from Babylon will be so much greater. And a lot of us, we live in what God did five years ago. Oh, yeah, God healed my marriage, and yeah, I was never the same. God healed my, I mean, God gave me blessing and finances, and I'll never be the same. We live in what God did, but I want to challenge you to think, what does God want to do today? God healed your marriage, but what does God want to do in your kids? God may have blessed your finances 10 years ago. How much more does God want to bless you today? We get stuck living in what God's already done instead of pressing towards what God is doing. But faith is progressive. God has done some amazing things in our lives, and we should not forget it. But at the same time, we can't live in it. Because God wants to do greater things in our lives tomorrow than he did yesterday. God wants to do greater things in this church in the next 30 years than he did in the first 30. And that doesn't forsake anything that God has already done. But I want to challenge you to think maybe God wants to do something bigger today. Faith is progressive. I want to challenge your faith a little bit this morning. I want to challenge the way you think. God isn't done with us yet. God isn't done with you yet. Young people, God has not forsaken your generation. God doesn't look at your generation like the rest of the world does. God is producing something. God is preparing us for something that we're not expecting. Something that we can't see. We need to learn to look into the future with a perspective of, uh, of progressive faith. We need to learn to look at our lives with progressive faith. Look at what's coming. Look at what God is doing on the horizon. It may be difficult right now, but God is producing something in it. God is building something in me in the future, and I can see I'm pressing on towards it. That's what progressive faith is. Not a dead faith that lives in what God already did. 
Your faith doesn't need to be big. It just needs to be present. Your faith evens out the playing field and your faith is progressive. It needs to be progressive. And I opened up this morning talking about what? Faith and works. What, what kind of a faith that works is, is a faith with works. That, that's what we need. And so we know that it's not just faith. All these things apply. We, we need present faith in our lives. Faith evens out, it does even out the playing field. Faith is progressive. But it's not just about the faith. But we have to accompany our faith with works. How do we grow? How do we get to the end goal? How do we move forward? We need to put some action behind our faith. Growth is the result of combining your faith and your actions. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to challenge every single individual in this room today. I want to talk to every single individual, you, yourself. I want to talk to you today to put some action behind your faith. Because what happens in the world, what, ha what I've seen happen in church so many times, is we fall into this trap that God doesn't need me, God needs us. God, God doesn't need, God doesn't just need me, God needs the church. How many of you guys have ever said that before? God needs the church to stand up. God, God needs, we need to stand up, we need to fight. We say that, right? God, God needs us, but the truth is, is that God needs you. Talking to you as an individual, God needs you. God wants to use your life. Jesus died for who? For you. He left the 99 for the one. Who's the one? You're the one. It's you. God wants to use you. Jesus conquered the grave for relationship with you. He wanted to have relationship with you. God wants relationship with you. God wants to use you. And we fall into this trap that God wants to use them. God wants to use us. God, we, we put everyone together like, it's like a corporate church. God wants to use the church. And there is truth to that. But God specifically wants to use you. The reason why you have your own sphere of influence, the reason why we all have different jobs and different hobbies and different interests and different abilities, the reason why we all have different careers, we go to different schools, we might be in college, we might be in high, we're all in different stages of life, we have different friends, different families. The reason why that is, is because God is going to use you to reach people that other people can't reach for you. God has placed you in the middle of people for you to make a difference in their lives. The people around you, it doesn't fall on the pastor's responsibility. It doesn't fall on, on the church's responsibility. God has placed people around you. For who? For you. God wants to use, God put dreams in your heart that are specific for you that are designed for you. They're not designed for us. Your dreams might be different than my dreams. Your vision might be different than my vision because God wants to use you in a way that he can only use you. And I want to show you something in this story that, that we read about Gideon and the Midianite army. I'm talking about 450 to one odds. Not very good chances, but there's something that caught my attention in this story it's found in Judges chapter 7. I believe this is something that it's very common for a lot of us to just read over and miss. But we read in, in Judges chapter 7 verse 2 that 
God said to Gideon after Gideon gathered around 32,000 men, he said to Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands. And then we jump down to verse number 7, and God says this. With the 300 men that lapped, I will save you, and I will give the Midianites into your hands. And I don't know if you caught the different phrasing in these two scriptures. I don't know if you noticed it. But if we look at verse number 2, God is saying, look, Gideon, you've got, you've got a good amount of people. You've got, you got 32,000 people. But I can't deliver Gideon into their hands. It's not going to work. I, I know you think you have better chances with more people, but, but Gideon, I can't, I can't deliver them into their hands. But when we jump down to verse 7, there's a change of phrasing. All of a, all of a sudden, God says, with 300 men that lapped, I will save you and I will give Midianites into whose? Into your hands. I can't do it for them, but I can do it for you. I can't, I can't do it, for, I, but I can do it for you. And I think that's something that God wants to impart to every single person in this room today. There's things that God can't do for them, but God can do for you. God wants to use you in your own unique way. To, to reach your own people, to reach your own neighbors, to reach your own family, to reach your own friends, your own co-workers. God wants to use you. A lot of times we fall in the trap. God wants to use them. God wants to use us. No, God wants to use you. We fall into this corporate church trap. The church isn't a building. The church isn't a group of The church is you. The Holy Spirit lives in you. The power of God has been given to you. The authority has been given to you. Don't wait for them. God's not waiting on everyone else. God's not waiting on pastor. God's not waiting on the person sitting next to you. God's not waiting for your family members. God's not waiting for your leaders. God's not waiting for the department heads. God is waiting on you. God is ready to use you. He doesn't need to use anybody. God wants to use you, not them, you. And so if there's anybody in this room today that can say, I've fallen into that trap, and every single one of us has, we get okay with the way things are. We, well, we're just waiting around for, for God to spark something. We're waiting around for someone to spark something. No, God is waiting on you. We don't have to wait till a conference for, for God to do something great in our community. We don't have to wait for a, for a certain camp for God to use our young people. No, God isn't waiting on an event. God isn't waiting on a certain Sunday service. God isn't waiting on a guest speaker. God is waiting for you. If you will stand up and decide, no, today is the day that I'm going to throw myself in. Today, I'm standing out today. I'm standing out. I'm speaking out today. I'm making a difference today. God is waiting on you. He's not waiting on them. He's waiting on you. Come on, if that's you today, if there's anybody in this room that wants to say, God, you can use me. God, I, I'm not waiting for everyone else. I'm not waiting. God, you can use me today. I'm ready. Come on, is there anybody in this room today? Come on, that's you. Can you stand to your feet all over this place? God, you can use me. God, I'm not waiting for them. I'm, I'm ready, God. You can use me. God, you've put things in my heart just for me. You've put people in my life for me. God, you want to use me. You left the 99 
for me. God, we pray today, Father. Come on, let's commit together. God, I'm, I'm committing to you right now. God, that you can use my life. You can use me, God, to make a difference in our world. You can use me to make a difference in my community, God. God, I pray you would use each of us as, as individuals, Father God, to, bring it, to begin to bring change in our world today, God. Use me, Lord. I'm not waiting for them. I'm not putting my faith in other people's hands. God, you can use me today. God, I take full responsibility of the calling that has been placed on my life. I'm not passing it on to anybody else. God, you've placed it on me for me, God. So I pray you'd use us. Come on, let's pray for our faith today. I want to pray faith into you. God, I pray, God, that you would impart progressive, active faith in every person in this room today, God. That they wouldn't look back, God, but they would look forward. They would see the things that you're doing in the future that can't be seen yet, God. They would look at this next generation, God, and they would see the fruit that's coming out of it. They would see the preparation that has begun to take place, that this is a generation that isn't just going to stand by. They want to be a part of something bigger. They want to be a part of something greater than themselves, God. We pray, God, God, I lift up every person in this room, that you would build up their faith today, God, so that as they leave this place, it would beckon response from them. Faith and action, faith and works, God. I pray, God, that that would be an image of this church, God. We're not just a church of faith, but we're a church of faith and works in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, Amen. Come on. Christ is my firm foundation. The rock. Come on. The rock on which I stand when everything around me is shaking.
How many would say my faith has been a bit, <laughs> there's, a, there's something that's welling up inside me after that message today. How many appreciate that message this morning? Come on, I'm leaving here. I came in here today because, and I told God, God, I want you to do something in my heart. I want you to speak to my heart today. And I opened myself up to the Lord because I believe that every time we're here, there's an opportunity for God to plant something within us. And today, a seed of faith was planted. It was planted in my heart, and I believe it was planted in so many of the hearts here. We're going to walk out of here putting action into our faith. Amen? We're going to walk out of this place this morning putting action to our faith. Nothing is too big. Nothing is too great. God can handle it all, and He's looking for us to use our faith, put it to action. What a, what a tremendous message this morning. God is going to do such an amazing thing in this coming year, and I believe it, as we begin to not only be the church in here, but be the church out there putting action to our faith, God is going to do a great thing. We're glad that you joined in with us today and everybody online. We just want to remind you this morning, we want to remind you we have a prayer hotline. We're, we're a people of faith, and every Saturday morning we meet together and we pray in this place and we lift up the issues of this church and the issues of our world to the Lord. And I want to encourage you, if you, if you have things that you need to pray for, you, you, you have, uh, you've got issues that are going on in your, in your life or there's people that you know that have issues, we want to pray for you. We have seen testimonies from the faith, from the faith and the prayers of the people of God put into use on Saturday mornings. We've been seeing testimonies of God healing people, God delivering people. We've been seeing testimonies of God doing great works in people's hearts. And we want to see God do something in your situation as well. We encourage you to send in your prayer requests so that we can pray for them. And we, we love you in this place today. We're so glad that you're joined in with us here at Elevate. As we go out from this place, let's put our faith into action. God can use us. He can use you this week. God bless you as you go. We love you. Take care.